everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. This is one of our Ask Me Anything follow-up episodes where we answer the remaining questions from the AMA time after our Sunday service. We have a bunch of questions, so Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, is still going to try to concisely answer them all with Nicole Kyle, our music and worship arts director. Most of the questions are related to the sermon, which was a great wake-up call on doing the hard thing in Christ, and we've also got a few unrelated questions. As a reminder, we are still on break until September 15th, but we'll be releasing these AMA podcasts each week, as well as any other time-sensitive content. During this time, we're working to improve the podcast. We would love to hear your suggestions, so please help us out by completing the survey linked in the show notes. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the AMA podcast. This is coming after Sunday, August 23rd. My name is Nicole Kyle, and I work here at High Point. I am with Nick Gibson, who also works at High Point. Hello, everyone. Yesterday, Nick preached a sermon, and we got a ton of questions, and we got through like five. Yeah, maybe? I really struggled landing the plane on that one that you asked me. Yeah, that's all right. So was, I, I answered it for like six minutes and fifteen seconds. It was bad. It, it was long, but that's okay. We have. I mean, even if that, we would have answered maybe one more, and still we would have had fifteen for the podcast. So yeah. All right, I'm ready. I'm ready to be okay. concise. Great. So here's our first question. Let's just dive right in. When a genuine believer in the faith suffers from anxiety, how can you discern between weakness and idleness? Yeah. Okay. That's so to one. clarify from the sermon yesterday, um, one of the verses there in First Thessalonians 5, 12 to 18 says what you should what you should do as a Christian believer with certain kinds of people, that the idol you're supposed to warn and the 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 um the fearful or the cowardly you're supposed to encourage the weak you're supposed to help right and everyone you're supposed to give patience mm-hmm. right and so i said like this is a good diagnostic if somebody's struggling yeah. with what's the problem are they idle and therefore need to be warned or are they weak and therefore need to be helped or are they in cowardice are they in fear and they need to be encouraged right that's the that's the context of this question yeah i think i think the answer is um, whether or not they're willing to do the next good thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are some issues that we have that are in some ways, like not entirely our fault, but we're still responsible to do the next right thing. So yeah. in the, in the area of psychological problems like depression or anxiety or something like that, where it's, it feels like it's happening to you. And in a lot of ways you, you didn't choose it. And so you, right. And sometimes it's wrapped up in your temperament and wounds or all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. None of that may be your fault, but you are still a responsible human being bearing the image of God. And so it is your responsibility to do the next right thing, pursuing the good God's goods. Right. And so if you are not willing to do that, you are in the state of idleness. Now that doesn't mean you're, you're only in the state of idleness. Mm -hmm. You can be both in the state of weakness and in the state of idleness in different ways at the same time. Mm-hmm. So you can be in a state of weakness because like you just can't deliver. Like, you're like you can't do something like you're really struggling and somebody being there for you and just helping you bear that burden. Um, maybe what you need. And so mm-hmm. it may be that a, a real and really loving a person 
they may need our help because they're in the state of weakness on something, but you're also observing that they aren't doing the next good thing they really need to do to help themselves or to trust God and to right. follow him into the next thing. And if they're not, that is an idleness and yeah. that should be warned. Right. Right. And sometimes it's just, look, if, if you don't do this next thing you do, you know, you need to do, you need to call the counselor. Right. You need to sit down and do the thing they told you to do. You need to, whatever it is, whatever the next good thing is. Yeah we're just going to get more of this or it's going to get worse. Right. Right. That, and sometimes you, I'm not when, warning. I don't necessarily mean like fire and brimstone. Hell's coming yeah. down to kill. Like it just, you need to, you need to like try to impress on somebody the likely results of their continued action. Yeah. Right. And that's yeah. what warning is when someone is idle. Yeah. Also to speak from personal experience of times where I have done a terrible job at this from the person who's trying to help the, the other one, mm-hmm. you, what, what, what might be the action that is the next right thing for you may not be the action that is the next right thing for them, especially yeah. if they are in a state of weakness. Yeah. And so you got to discern that too. You mean like if you're in a relationship with them and they're angering you by their behavior and what you want them to do to stop messing with you yeah. actually isn't the right next therapeutic step for them. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. That's very common actually. Yeah. Yeah, and because like, what what they're doing to harm you is actually quite a ways downstream from the next thing they need to do. Yeah, that's yeah, that's or even if they're not harming you, but you just see that they're not at what you think is their full potential or right. ability. Well, it all like maybe the next right thing for you to do is to start and have this conversation, but maybe they have to do something else first before that. Yeah, agree. So okay, do you want to go to the next question? Sure. Okay. I thought I heard someone yelling dad in the background, so I didn't yes, know if you needed to. Yes, one of my kids was yelling. No, let's keep going. They need okay. to learn. Okay. All right. So the next question says, did you say in your sermon that clinical depression is allowed to happen? Yeah. Um, okay. So I think my answer is yes and no. So clinical depression is a state. It's simply descriptive. And so there's lots of what's what you might call preveniences, how something comes to be, right? And so um, clinical depression can have a number of preveniences. Some of those are completely involuntary in the sense that they were a series of things that happened to you that would necessarily ultimately bring about certain traumas or wounds that would necessarily lead to clinical depressions and so on. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Or secondly, um, there is the issue of um, sometimes there's like some sort of like chemical issue or like other issues that like something happens that there's no explanation for. However, most depression is caused by a interworking number of things that happen to somebody, right? So mm-hmm. it may be a psychological issue from a trauma with a blah, 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 with all whatever. But a lot of times those don't necessitate that you fall into a depression that is clinical. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so, for example, um, psychologists estimate, according to oh, what's his name, the guy who was the president of American Enterprise Institute, I can't think of his name right now. Anyway, that like something like sixty percent. I can't remember sixty percent or forty percent. One of the flips is like genetically predetermined by your temperament about how naturally happy and not depressed you are. Um, if you have a melancholy temperament, you just have a melancholy temperament, right? Um, but the other portion is well within your control. That is. Um, ordering whether or not you have a worldview about what, why everything exists and what it means, right? Having having a, a clear worldview, having friends, 
that meaningfully contribute to your life, having a mm-hmm. people that you believe you fundamentally belong with that you consider family, and mm-hmm. whether you do meaningful work that you think affects other people's lives positively. Those things dramatically affect people's mental states relative to things like depression, right? And so, if and also whether or not you do the work necessary to heal from traumas and past right. pains and psychological problems and ways you're harming yourself and things related to your character, you can do a lot of things from bad character that lead to a lot of bad things happening in your life or bad choices that put you in negative situations, all of which contribute to depression. So, do people allow depression to happen to themselves that becomes clinical depression? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. But is all clinical depression something people have inflicted upon themselves? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Right. People want to be morally absolved from thing from psychological problems and their later effects. They want to believe they have no responsibility in those things. And in some cases, maybe they don't have very much. Maybe it was pretty involuntary. Even if though you're in that state involuntary, you still have responsibility to fight it and deal with it. Right. Uh So I think Christians have to have a pro therapeutic mindset in not being judgy about people's psychological problems and yet a very pro responsibility and ethical mindset about how we should deal with the problems we've got. Mm-hmm. Right. And to take as much responsibility as we can for our problems. One of the things I think is really unhelpful is if you tell a depressed person that none of this is their fault, literally none of it, what it, that also does is it takes away their self-determination. Yeah. Right. When something's not your fault at all and you're not even making a contribution to it, then what can you really do for things to be different? And the answer mm-hmm. is nothing. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's, it is, Men, well meant but wrong headed yeah mm-hmm. to tell somebody that you know everything's fine yeah like it's not your fault just take this medication mm-hmm. it's clinical depression it's because it's because i've now called it clinical there's nothing you can do right that's almost never true yeah and i remember one of the psychotherapists um in florida that i worked with she would say no yeah when people are clinically depressed i put them on medications for a short-term period of time mm-hmm. so that they can kind of like get in a state where they can work on stuff she yeah. said but what i find is is that they if they don't work on their things that means that what that means is they take personal responsibility to deal right. with their stuff right. she said ultimately the medication does not have a long-term positive effect it becomes a coping yeah. mechanism that they then are dependent on and that and ultimately they aren't happy yeah right because medication can't make you happy it can just make you not that depressed mhm mhm right yep so anyway when my husband and I were both in, we were for different reasons. We were each in counseling. He was in um, counseling with someone for depression, and I was seeing a trauma counselor and dealing with anxiety. And both of our therapists were really um, insistent that we needed to participate in getting better, and that it had yeah. to be things that we were doing, not just coming to them and having therapy, or not just taking medication. But it was it needed to involve work in the in between right. as well. Yeah. Right. And, and, and sometimes you're, you feel too weak to do it and you yeah. do need other people to help you. Yeah. And I look, I get that. If like, mm-hmm. if you like, look, you need to go for a run every day and blah, 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 And you're like, I can't get out of bed. Like, listen, I get that. Yeah. And you may need other people to help you, but you may need to give somebody permission to literally drag you out of bed or pour right. water on you to get you out of the bed. So like, yeah. like life is a brutal thing. It's a brutal, yeah. terrible, difficult thing full of all kinds of serious problems. Yeah. And if whenever there's a serious problem, the way we deal with it is like, well, we can't, let somebody feel morally responsible for this problem yeah. or they'll feel more depressed and more mm-hmm. hurt and more anxious. I actually think that that's a really well-meaning, but mm-hmm. ultimately extremely destructive yeah. way to deal with human beings. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's move to the next question. This is about hey. encouraging others in a practical way. And I think this is specifically talking about in the context of living in the COVID era. So this person asks, what practical ways come to mind that will encourage others and exert ourselves to help others safely? 
And then additionally, does High Point Church staff know of folks who could use a card, a call, some cookies, etc.? I signed up to help with our COVID service team, but I haven't mm-hmm. had anything, though I understand how difficult it is to administrate multiple things at a time. Yeah. Practical ways to come to Christians. Well, I think some of the things that she listed, mm-hmm. right? Writing people cards, making a call, making cookies for somebody. Um, healthy snacks probably during COVID are a great <laughs> yeah. thing. Um, one of my daughters has called a couple people and said, hey, will you pick a morning during the week to go running with me? Mm-hmm. Like weekly, mm-hmm. right? So she's like trying to do something healthy for herself. Make, she's going to run every day, right? right? Or almost every day. And she's going to run with a different person every day. Yeah. Right. And so she's hoping that that'll be a blessing to the other person mm-hmm. while it's something that she's doing. Yeah. And so there it is. So I think just start with like fundamentally human things. Yeah. Right. People feel insecure right now. They don't know what's going on. People, some people feel depressed. Some people feel upset. Some people feel isolated. Start with like the practical human things. Think about how you would feel mm-hmm. and then do something that helps people feel better. Right. Being open to the fact that other people might feel different than you. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So you have to be kind of sensitive about where they're at, but also empathy. Like, how would you feel is a good way to start. Yeah. And almost everybody likes to be encouraged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At a staff meeting, I think Jill brought this up that at the beginning of COVID, a lot of people were doing porch drops because we were at, in the mm-hmm. beginning of it and we're like, oh, well, this is something we can do. And now, you know, it's five months later and we're kind of forgotten about that. But those things that we did at the beginning are still really meaningful and could still encourage somebody today. Yeah. Um, okay. So the next couple of questions um, are, I mean, they're not related, but they're kind of about what we're looking at as facts or truth. So mm-hmm. the first person writes, how is it best to respond to people within the church who react to issues emotionally instead of based on verifiable facts? Yeah. Okay. So the first thing is, Usually we think we are responding to verifiable facts a hundred percent and other people are just being emotional. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. In fact, there are some people whose names are on this list of question askers, (laughs) you know, that are, that are some of some uh, people who are sometimes usual suspects on Facebook, for example. Um, So I I would say just, first of all, just make sure that that's exactly what's happening. Cause what, what often happens in these things are you have just heard from different sources. Sure. Right. Like you're in one media stream and they're connected with a certain stream of sources and they're telling you these things that are quote facts. And then you have other people who are in other streams and they are interested in different facts. Yeah. And so they end up hearing different facts. Right. Before you go on, I'm just going to say the second question because you're going to address them both. The second question says, what do we do with quote science that we're being presented with that contradicts what other quote scientists are saying? So continue. Right. And like, you know, journalists are, you know, especially right now, they're cranking out stories so fast mm-hmm. that there's there's a lot less really good verification and, and and it's very easy to misprint science. And then it's fun to print when science first comes out, but it's not fun to print when it needs to be corrected. Right. Yeah. And then you want to say something exciting about the science you're reporting. And so oftentimes it gets kind of overreported. Right. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's not clear, like on what level the science is quote, verifiably accurate, right? So like, so for example, um, a lot of what's coming out with COVID, the quote science for COVID is projections, mm-hmm. right? Well, projections are notoriously inaccurate, right? I mean, just, just look at any like 
um, like budgetary, like financial projection the government has like ever done from the Congressional Budget Office or look at the global warming projections over the last 15 years or look at – I mean just look at any of these kind of like – anytime you have like a global projection, right? So mm-hmm. like you could kind of project like sales at a West Madison Target over sure. the month of March. Like when you get really narrow on those kind of projections, sometimes projections can be really accurate. Mm-hmm. But for the most part when you're like, you know, like how many hurricanes are we going to have in six <laughs> years? Like – it's just way too complicated a thing. And so you have scientists producing these projections, but that doesn't mean that they're anything close to science. Does that make sense? Right. And even though this, they're quote verifying it based on data, it doesn't mean that it's quote verified. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Secondly, there's a lot of stuff that's put out as science that just isn't science. So for example, the um, implicit bias tests, the IATs, mm-hmm. they're not science, right? Like they are, they are a test. The test is designed to show implicit bias. It intuitively makes sense, right? Like that if you react certain ways, it would produce a finding relative to intuitive, intuitive or or uh, in, or like un, ununderstood bias, right? Does that make sense? But when it's subjected to the psychological standards for like that use math, right? Like the right. like the, like the actual statistical standards for reliability, they flunk horrifically. Like none of the tests are even in the neighborhood of scientific. Does that make mm-hmm, sense? Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean they're false, right? So like a lot of people use Myers-Briggs. Myers-Briggs is not scientific, right? Mm-hmm. Now it's scientific in the sense that a scientist, Carl Jung, did therapy for 40 years, talked to thousands of people. And out of that, he assessed different kinds of personality types. Other people in the field have then worked on this and so on. So it is science in that people in the scientific field have developed it. Right. So what I'm saying is, is like the word science can mean almost anything. Mm-hmm. And the word fact and verifiable fact can mean almost anything. Yeah. So you just got to be really, really careful and rigorous and just say, look, here are the facts I think I know mm-hmm. and offer them to people. Yeah. And then they're going to be like, here are the facts I think I know. Mm-hmm. And it's it's You got to expect it to go back and forth a few times. There's this passage in the Bible that says um, that a person, when a person stands up in court and makes their case, they seem right. Until the other guy gets up right. and tells the other side. Right. Right. And then it takes a lot of discernment wisdom to figure out who the heck is right. In yeah. debate, you kind of want people to go back and forth four or five times. Yeah. Before you kind of know who's full of it and who's right. Mm-hmm. One of the things I do um, during the school year is I judge debates. My kids are in speech and debate. And so all the parents have to judge debates. And so I end up judging all these debates. Right. And oftentimes there's stuff I do not know much about. Because the topics are so broad, any particular case can be very narrow and it can be focused on evidence that I'm not familiar with. And so sometimes after 90 minutes of debate, it is not obvious Mm -hmm. who is quoting the better evidence in the better ways. Mm -hmm. And it's really frustrating. And they've Mm -hmm. gone back and forth four times. Yeah. So I just think it's really, it's really important to just recognize all of that and then try to be as unemotional as you can and then try to make the best of what other people say and say, like when people do an emotional rant, what I try to do is I try to make the best argument I can from what they say. What I hear you saying is this, is that your argument? And then I let them respond. Mm-hmm. And if it, then it's just another tirade that I don't engage. Yeah. Now I want to ask a follow-up question because I was just talking about this with somebody last week, this sort of idea. They were mm-hmm. talking about how engaging in these sorts of conversations with their friends. And we were talking about this kind of a thing, like when when people are really having an emotional reaction and response rather than talking about facts. And we were talking about how like 
when you're with a friend that you're trying to maintain a relationship with, that's not the same as being in a debate competition, or it's not the same as being in a courtroom where you're trying to win a case. You're now talking about a person you're attempting to have a relationship with and to make peace with. So all of what you said, it's not that it stops being true when you're talking with a person that you have a relationship with, but when, how, can you speak a little bit to when you have to realize, okay, now this isn't about who's right and who's wrong, but it's about something else that's going on. Cause sometimes you have to be able to recognize that and realize, oh, we need to put the, the, like the debate over here and deal with the real issue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's a really difficult question because you're making you have to discern there's no there is no like true false here like it's it's yeah. discernment right you have to decide because you know most of us have in a democracy everybody has a certain limited amount of public responsibility right and it's almost impossible to be qualified to actually do your public responsibility mm-hmm. and then most of the rest of the time you're not in charge of doing that mm-hmm. but because uh because we have an increasing secular religion around politics that's becoming more problematic right yeah so so one i would encourage christians to recognize what's going on with the secular religion of politics and not allow your view of politics or its related related arguments to achieve that level of status Uh right secondly it's really important to recognize how little we know why we have these administrations and authorities to begin with because you you can't just know everything about everything i think you need to understand something and be somewhat sophisticated about the perverse incentives in the news media and how we get information and why people say the sort of things they do and so on. Um, for the most, I think for the most part, most people should just pick somebody close to them that they trust is qualified in some of these things and then just listen to them mm-hmm. and just forego the whole thing. Like in local politics, there was a guy who used to live here who I would always ask yeah. who I should vote for in local politics. And I just didn't involve myself because yeah. you just, you, you just can't do everything. Yeah. Right. So yeah, and then if you if you really think that they're if they're really agitated, then I I think you might you can ask them about that like like this sounds really important to you yeah right um, there is just a portion of the population that is just really involved with politics yeah and what's being said in the media and and mm-hmm. and all that stuff and they're just really exercised about which side they're on because it's a culture war yeah yeah and the problem is is like it it is a culture war like there are two very different versions of what human beings are mm-hmm. and how human beings would flourish together being pushed back and forth in our country at this time with roughly semi-equal groups of people on both sides. Uh That's kind of true in that sense. It's a culture war. And we have all kinds of bad incentives of people riding us up to fight. At the same time, there are certain ways in which it's not much of a culture war. For example, gay people have been getting rights progressively for like the last 30 years, very quickly. And yet the last, I don't know, 15 religious liberty cases in the Supreme Court have all been found in favor of religious liberty. So as things are progressing at the federal government level, like, for example, in the Supreme Court, they're kind of picking, they've been picking the both and approach for a while. Yeah. If people could commit themselves to the concept of liberty, that we were going to let people do what they wanted and argue for what we think is right. Right. We might be able to live together and not have to kill each other. Mm -hmm. And it may be if more people were interested in that, we wouldn't have as bad things. So I, yeah, I tend to try to like, calm the debate down i mean i just think that's what like if you look at the requirements for an elder in the church three or four of them are specifically related to temperance Mm -hmm. right it's the bible says that like a wise person calms down 
disagreements, right? There's a lot in the Bible that, that is against contentious people. Yeah. And like, if you begin to read your Bible and you take those views, those ideas to heart, then you'll be careful about your words. You'll be, you'll be really, you know, cause sometimes you'll even say something you think is a fact and, and you just, you don't realize the edge you're putting on it. That sure. you're saying you're either stupid or evil if you don't agree with me. Yeah. <laughs> because what I'm saying is a fact and there's only one way to take this fact. Yeah. So I think that mm-hmm. humility, yeah, temperance, sobriety, prudence. Right. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. but these are skills you build in mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful though. Um sometimes I my personality, sometimes I wish that all these conversations could be just in the middle of it, like a debate floor, and then you could just leave it there. Yeah. But that's just not real life. So, okay. Yeah. I think it's okay to just say, do you really want to have a debate about this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because sometimes the person you're talking to doesn't mind. And it like, there are instances where there are people who are like, yeah, we can have the debate and know that we're still going to maintain the relationship afterwards. Some people right. don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's so true. Mm-hmm. That's And some people get really, really hurt if you disagree. I mean, I, I was at yeah. something just recently where pe- people were saying things that I thought were like certifiably out there. Yeah. Well, that actually happens all the time in Madison yeah. because the, the people on the right are, can often be really fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. That's much fewer, but they can be really fundamentalist in order to stay on the right because the left is so lefty here. Yeah. And then the left people on the left just don't have anybody really confronting them very much because yeah. they kind of have the run of the place. And so it's always lefties attacking lefties. It's not even, they don't even care about the right, you know? Yeah. And so, I'm just kind of like, what, what the heck is going on? Yeah. You know? So when people say something and they want me to nod along to signal I'm a good person, sometimes I just have to say, listen, I just, I come at these issues from, I think a very different perspective as you. Yeah. And I, I don't think it'd be fruitful to get into this unless we're going to get into it really deep. Yeah. I think that's good. And a lot of people go, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause the shallow level is going to be so misunderstood right, and not nuanced enough. Yeah. Yeah. You literally mean different things with the same words. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. I'm going to move us to the next question. So before, when we were, you were kind of recapped part of your sermon, you talked about how the passage addressed how we, how we should treat people who are idle, timid, and weak. Um, and there were three really helpful responses to that. So this person writes, the examples that you gave of how we might be responding, how people might be responding right now, idle, timid, or weak, seem to apply to those who are choosing to be more conservative in terms of their response to COVID, more cautious. What kind of self-reflection does a person need to have if they fall into the more liberal response to COVID, liberal meaning feeling more freedoms to go outside, feeling more comfortable with their health and safety? Right. So conservative and liberal here I mean the flip. Ours would be flipped <laughs> relative to people's pro- the preponderance of people's politics. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So if you feel like it's okay not to wear a mask and you think it's stupid to wear a mask even inside if there's plenty of space and all that kind of stuff, that would be liberal in this kind of because you just feel a liberality. Yeah. You feel liberty to do what you, you want and and other people a lot of times are being conservative out of a sense of, of shared responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the question is, what should a person who feels more liberality mm-hmm. What kind of reflect reflect mm -hmm. on? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's always good to have humility and know that you might be wrong. Yeah. Right. Um, Because it is, it is in some ways hard to to know what's going to happen with certain things. Right. I think also um, remember scripture says in a couple of different places, one of them is in Romans 14 that a mature Christian 
will go out of their way to accommodate other people's philosophical weaknesses. Yeah. So people who are wrong about stuff, they go out of their way to accommodate them whenever possible to the point of being a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, think about that. Yeah. Like Paul's a Jew. Jews are, are meat eaters by, by religious conviction. Okay. Like, yeah. I mean, think about that. Like you literally eat me as part of being a Jew. Yeah. Right. And he's like, look, if I, if somebody thinks it's wrong to eat meat because it's sacrificed to idols and whatever, if I have to become a, like, if I have to not eat any meat, I'll do it. Yeah. Right. Manohar James, for example, one of our ministers, he will not eat pork full stop mm-hmm. and beef. He won't eat any beef either because if he goes to India mm-hmm. and anybody asks him if he's eaten those before and he says, yes, they will write him off entirely as a mm-hmm. decent human being. Mm-hmm. Because of the the religious views, either of the uncleanness of swine or the sacredness of cows. Yeah. Right. And so, like, even when he's here, he doesn't eat them. Yeah. Right. Because some Hindu might ask him, have you ever eaten a cow? Yeah. And he wants to be able to say, no, never. Yeah. Not because he shouldn't. He has the freedom of Christ to eat a cow. Right. But in but he chooses in Christ to position himself yeah. so that that person won't write him off and he can become all things to all men. Which like it says yeah. in first Corinthians nine. So I think if you're like, I don't have to wear a mask. All right. But if anybody around you needs you to right, wear it, mm-hmm. what ends up what's happening with, with political conservatives who feel liberality in this mm-hmm. is that our political convictions about the maintenance of Liberty in a structured Republic is overwhelming our religious duty to not use our liberty to cause the stumbling of the weak. And people feel like that's a manipulative catch 22 because what they're saying is, is like, well, but the people who are progressives are going to act weak. They're going to act like, Oh, my conscience is hurt. Oh, my conscience is hurt by your behavior. And they're going to manipulatively control all of our behavior the rest of our lives. And we're not going to fall for that. And that's, I think that's true in the sense that you do need to discern the difference between true conscientiousness and manipulative preening mm-hmm. and like actions and and there there are a lot of people who really convictionally feel like we should be conservative right now in terms of our behavior with masks and putting on masks is not that big a deal right now it is reasonably temporary like if we're still here two years later and the government wants us to wear masks literally everywhere we go and you're like screw this okay well like we can talk how much two years. <laughs> time has, right how much time has gone by yeah. is relevant some yeah. people think five months is nuts and like i understand that yeah but like this is still novel for most Americans. Yeah. This is our first experience with it. And so you, it's kind of like when I, I'm around first parents mm-hmm. and they're like freaking out about their kid and like, am I parenting right? Are the naps all right? I'm like, listen, you're not going to parent right. You are going to traumatize your child in ways you never imagined. It's not going to go well. And your kid is probably going to turn out about like you. Mm-hmm. So just relax. Like, First parents can't hear that. And parenting your kid is really difficult. And maybe they maybe they are going to do a better job than me. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you just leave them alone. Mm-hmm. They'll figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. So even if those people are right, you still don't have to mess with them. Mm-hmm. So I think the Christian doctrine of freedom of conscience and recognizing some people are, quote, weak in faith, to put it in Paul's terms, in that they're being too cautious because they don't understand the freedom they have in Christ. Fine. But here... But, you know, the Bible is really focused on putting our best foot forward with the unbelieving public and, secondly, respecting other people's conscience. So we need to respect the conscience of people who are being more careful. Mm-hmm. And, like, so, so I wear masks. Like, I don't, I, don't have, I don't have any problem with that. I wear a mask. 
wherever people expect me to wear masks and I don't where I don't need to. Mm -hmm. And I probably would be a little bit more libertine than some other people. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I do what I feel like I should to be helpful. And I try not to demonize people who are more conservative than me. Mm -hmm. And, and, Part, yeah. Anyway, I, I just think it's good manners. I in kindness. I don't even think it's that deep a spiritual thing. And you, you, it's okay to have really strong political views, but you they don't get to contradict our Christian ones, right? Right. Like yeah. I, I mean, it's, it, for me, that's like clear political possession. Yeah. Like if you can't obey the gospel because of your strong political beliefs, you're possessed by your political beliefs. They've become an idol. Yeah. You have to obey Christ first. So, like, if you think that, then you should, like, maybe write stuff about how we're overdoing the mask thing or not wear it wherever you don't have to or, mm-hmm. like, ar- make arguments in favor of that. But, like, I I wouldn't flaunt your freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the passage from my devotional this morning was in Philippians 2 that talks about treating one another with the humility that Christ exemplified for us. And I was noticing how... It, it was talking about how he's it uses the phrase being in the very nature in these two different instances how he being in the very nature god he did not consider his equality something to be obtained and instead he took the very nature of a servant and i just noticed this difference between how like this is who he was but he chose to take on this other identity in this moment in order to both serve us and be obedient to god Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a like maybe the passage that you preached from this past Sunday didn't have those sorts of reflections for the people who want more freedoms as it relates to masks. But like there are yeah. like the passage that you mentioned, this passage that's specifically about how to love other people, there are plenty of examples of how we how we can let go of this thing that we think that we're entitled to and a freedom that maybe we really do have mm-hmm. in order to serve other people and in order to love other people in humility. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's dragging. I understand that some people are coming from this with the, from the anti-fragility principle of like saying, look, if we just do everything the government tells us to do and by definition, everything they tell us to do is going to be quote law. And so therefore we're supposed to obey the government and then we just do it all. Um, it is easy to become sleep moving, sheep moving slowly to our own slaughter. Mm -hmm. And at some point, if you don't go like, we're not doing this, like we'll, we will find ourselves in tyranny and, um, you know, I hear that a lot from people, especially who like have a history of being in the Eastern European Soviet bloc and stuff. They're, yeah. like, they're like, I'm not okay with this, you know? Um, and it's true. It's hard to figure out when to put your foot down yeah. and say, I'm not doing this. Yeah. And I, so I have a lot of sympathy for people who don't want to wear the masks, especially when they're not really medically necessary. Yeah. Like, I don't understand why people wear masks when they're riding their bicycle alone. Yeah. Like, I just don't get it. Um, but I, I think that, I think we can hang in there a little bit longer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. We're going to shift gears a little bit. This next question, um, maybe we can do a few of these uh, more quickly and succinctly. This this one says, what does it practically look like to rejoice always? Does it mean always be happy even when you're not? Yeah. So I I think it's important to recognize that. um, So it says, um, be joyful always, right? In that passage Mm -hmm. we're talking about. And I think that it's helpful to recognize that there's a sometimes like just looking and seeing how the passage hangs together can be helpful for people. Right. So it says, make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong. That's absolute. Never, ever. Right. Yeah. Always 
rush into kindness with each other and everyone else, right? So you're rushing, always rushing into kindness, right? Then it's be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, right? So all of these are given as these like absolute broad blanket statements, right? Mm-hmm. So in the same way, your goal as a Christian is to never pay anyone back wrong for wrong. Your goal is also to, in Christ, find joy in all circumstances. Mm-hmm. That's all, right? <sighs> and, and all you know, all these are like, oh my gosh, right? But like pray continually. Yeah. It doesn't literally mean pray every second. Yeah. Right. But it, but it means that like prayer is always on your lips. Like it's this, it's this knee jerk. It's this default. It's this foundational setting. It's a like, what should we do? We should pray. The answer is always, we should pray. Yeah. Then do whatever you want, but you should always pray. Yeah. Prayer should just be something that just is always happening. Something, somebody does something bad. Well, we should forgive. We should not pay back wrong for wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do I relate to this person? Well, we should rush into kindness, whatever that is. Right. And like, how should, how should I just, what kind of attitude should I be in? Well, look around and give thanks. Yeah. Right. See how these are these like sort of generic foundational things that need to always be with you. And and our staff team, we call these our primary core values at the church. Right. So we have the primary core values are the things you always have to have on your mind. They're just everything you do. You're always dead on, on those things. And this is a really good list of these like Christian primary core values. Yeah. And so finding joy in Christ in every circumstance. Mm Mm-hmm. Is your is what you're putting mental energy toward putting spiritual? So like you're in a situation, it is however it is, and you're like, how can I find joy and be easily pleased in this situation? Mm-hmm. Right, and then you do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. lower your expectations, find thankfulness in certain ways, mm-hmm. either in all that God has given you, even though you don't have as much as you want, or if something bad is happening, what opportunities you have to grow in godliness in this in the midst of these things, like there are ways to find joy, right? Mm-hmm. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. And the better you get at it, the more easily pleased you are and the more joy you find in all kinds of circumstances. Yeah. So striving after being joyful always, mm-hmm. right, is a discipline. It's a skill. It's a, it's a, it's a character of holiness. It's a, it's a, it's a developmental thing, right? Yeah. And that's what you're working on. Are you always utterly happy and in, in emotional bliss continually? No, right. No, all of these are character pursuits in the, gracious striving in this in the sweaty work of of living by the grace of god mm-hmm. right and yeah. so that's one of the these are these are like five things you're doing to do that yeah well here's another question about those sorts of things as well you talked about what it means to be kind how can one practically grow in becoming more kind yeah it's, i yeah i struggle with questions like that because i'm kind of like what do you what do you mean <laughs> <laughs> So if kindness is the disposition of love towards others, recognizing that they live under the curse, right? That everybody, everybody's living under the curse. Life is Mm kind of hard for everyone, at least in some ways, way more than you think. Mm -hmm. Because everybody tries to clean it up and not look like a mess, Mm -hmm. except for the few people who just messy it up just to get attention, right? And so what do they need? Like, how can you make bearing their burden easier? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. It's like it's like yeah. the words of Gandalf to Frodo. I will bear this burden with you as long as it is. I will help you bear this burden as long as it's yours to bear. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a kindness. Yeah. Do you see kindness? I mean, like, I guess colloquially, I can never think about colloquially, <laughs> the way that kindness and niceness are used. Is that kind of similar? Or do you view those differently? I think being nice 
is a form of kindness okay. or can be a form of kindness. I, I, I prefer to say politeness sure. instead mm-hmm. of niceness because niceness has a kind of um, like a kind of a white bread like mm-hmm. that word doesn't have a great connotation at the moment. Yeah. Um, it's just like something a helicopter parent would tell their three year old sure. when he like punches another kid or you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So I, I like to say manners and politeness. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, I think that that is, I think politeness and manners are a major kindness yeah. and it is the primary kindness that you get to show everyone. Yeah. I think you should try to be polite to everyone, mm-hmm. especially people who are impolite. Mm-hmm. And I think you should use manners always mm-hmm. because manners are a set of actions we do to put others at ease. Mm-hmm. That's what yeah. a manner is. Yeah. And to show them that they're valued. Yeah. Right. Those are the two purposes of manners to put others at ease and to show them that they're valued. Yeah. Well, by definition, that is a loving kindness, right? right so right. do it for heaven's sake. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. if you don't have manners, make some up. Yeah. Make up things like, you know, you're like, well, I don't like old fashioned. Like I don't want to read George Washington's book of manners. Okay, fine. Think about other people, how you can show them that they're valued and put them at ease. Yeah. And, and that you can do, do it ritualistically so that they, they know to have that response to it yeah. and then do it. Yeah. You know? Uh-huh. Those are manners. There you go. Um, every time anyone is over at my – well, maybe not any time. But, like, it feels like most times that people are over at my parents' house. My mom is always, like, pulling out a tray of, like, coffee or tea and some sort of baked good. And it's just – she always does it. And it's one of her yeah. manners and ways that she is trying to put people at ease. Oh yeah, my wife does charcuterie. Yeah, like mm-hmm. salted meats and cheeses, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, I think I don't know if I've ever been to your house where your dad didn't offer me some tequila. <laughs> well, there you go, and that—that's a manner, you know. Just but I think <laughs> I've only been to your house, your parents' house twice. So, so there you go. We shouldn't. We should. That's not science. No. To go back to a former time. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, here's another one. Um, what are some practical ways to cultivate a heart of thankfulness and to practice that discipline? So create for yourself a liturgy where you give thanks, right? So a a liturgy is like a, like a timetable of rituals that you do and you do them regularly. And because remember people forget this, the way psychologists say it is this way up until age about eight, people live in a form of consciousness that is, that is predominated by imagination. And so the way you learn and change, and one of the reasons it's, you don't want to traumatize kids if you can help it Mm -hmm. is because things come in with the impression of imagination. That's why you need to be really kind to kids under eight, especially mm-hmm. because they're experiencing the world with this very tender, open imagination. And they're sucking things in. And if you drive a spear into that, it is really traumatic, right? Mm-hmm. After the age of about eight, we come into a different way of con- form of consciousness where we're not sucking in the world. We're like managing now what we've learned through those that period of time of imagination. So we're safer because we're not as easy to harm, yeah. but we're also, we don't change as fast, Right. Once you get into that later state of consciousness, by the time you're like 15, let's say, the way you change yourself is by repetitions, Mm -hmm. by -hmm. doing things over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And you choose to do that in your consciousness, but then that sort of, it rewires your mind and stuff like that. So that brain mind interaction, you're actually doing something to yourself physiologically by using your soulish consciousness to do it, right? That's why that's why spirituality has always had disciplines to it. That's Mm -hmm. why you can't be spiritual without disciplines. Yeah. Because you need the repetitions that change you. Right. So what you do is you you pick a repetition of thankfulness. So for example, that's why a lot of people pray to start meals. Mm-hmm. This is a moment to thank God for this meal and maybe a few other things. Mm-hmm. Um, waking up in the morning. Some people like kneel first thing in the morning and they thank God that they have a day. Mm-hmm. Or they they kneel down at night and they thank God for everything they can be thankful for. 
Yeah. Um, it's one of the reasons we have, th- I mean, we have Thanksgiving every year. I mean, that sounds trite, but it's not supposed to be. Right. What most people, when they pray, some people have heard of the um, acts mechanism of praying. So A is for adoration. C is for confession. T is for Thanksgiving. S for supplication or asking for stuff. So like every time you, if you follow that, you're always going to spend some time in prayer, thanking God for things. And it's going to come before you ask him for stuff. Yeah. There's something really healthy in that. So um, that's one of the reasons we have worship at the beginning of, Mm -hmm. of church so that every week, at least you spend time thanking God for things. So build yourself a thankfulness liturgy. Yeah. A time and a place and a ritual by which you thank God. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe every time you do the dishes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or you turn on the hot water, you're like, I'm going to wash the dishes and I'm going to think, I'm going to thank God that I have, I'm blessed with work right. and I'm going to thank God for the most mundane things in my life that are real blessings. Yeah. Every time I load the dishwasher or do dishes, right. Yeah. It, it, it can be like, you can make up your own. You don't have to follow the saints of old, right? but sometimes following the saints of old is good. Like mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with praying through the book of common prayer. Mm-hmm. It will lead you to thankfulness a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there. That's been helpful for me in different seasons of my life. I've had different liturgies of that. Um, when Scott and I were raising financial support to do ministry with the campus ministry, which was like really hard, we had this jar, and I had slips of paper, and we would just like write little slips of paper and put it in this jar for things that we were thankful for, not even related necessarily to finances and support, but just mm-hmm. like we needed to be reminded that there were things God was doing in our life, and that became this discipline we had, and. Now it looks different, but it, those were things that really grew my gratitude and, and a, a, yeah. a real discipline of thankfulness. Yeah. And just as it's the Christian, the Christians in terms of worship are, are, have a duty to worship God directly. They also have a duty to worship God's work in others through affirmation, through godly affirmation, mm-hmm. not flattery. Yeah. Right. Similar thing. I think, I think with thankfulness, you have the, uh, the duty to thank God for things and to thank others for things. Yeah. Right. Being thankful or giving thanks in all circumstances in First Thessalonians 5.18, specifically it refers to worship. Mm-hmm. But it also includes just having a thankful heart and always giving thanks and giving thanks yeah. to God in front of others. Mm-hmm. Like I've thanked God for you before, bringing you to high point before mm-hmm. in front of you. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think like thanking your spouse for making the meal or doing the laundry or right. not abandoning you or like, yeah. I mean, sometimes, I mean, thanking people for just doing their duty yeah. is a good thing to do because yeah. listen, Yes, they have to do their duty. It's also your duty to be thankful. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. Yep. Mm-hmm. Go for it. Okay. Um, this is the, the well, I think this is the last one that's related to the sermon. And then we got a whole other section. So. Yeah. I also think you should go out of your way to thank people who are invisible. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I always thank police officers yeah. when I see them working hard. I think, you know, like it's not just that sometimes servers or like just looking around. If I look, see somebody who just doesn't look like they're doing very well. Yeah. I'm going to look for something to say that is helpful. Mm -hmm. And if I can thank them for something Mm -hmm. or affirm something, I'm going to do that. Yeah. Mm Okay. 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 Last question in this section. Okay. Is there an opportunity to demonstrate quote, going the extra mile in this circumstance, i.e. COVID to demonstrate Mm -hmm. God's love to our civic leaders. So for a while, for example, you talked about like the, um, I don't remember what his name is, but Joe Parisi, I think is the executive county executive. There you go. County executive. Yeah. And like, is there some way that we could go the extra mile to demonstrate God's love to him for an example? Yeah. So today, I was both, I'm both deliberating with elders and church and school leaders as to whether or not to sue him. Okay. I mean, I, I, not sue him, obviously, but yes. like to sue, <laughs> to undo one of his right. decrees, uh-huh. right? 
And I also wrote down, I need to send him a a an encouraging personal note Mm. and say, listen, you and I are not on the same side of the thing. And I'm, I'm sorry about that. Like, I I, I wish that wasn't true. And I just want you to know though, that like, I, I know you're doing your best and I know that you're trying. And I, I just, I I thank you for doing this work. And like, I just, I need to write him a note. I need to try to write him encouraging, thanking, a note of thankfulness, even though I may have to add my name to the people who are suing him, you know? Yeah. That's so great. I, yeah. I just, yeah, I'm, I'm, first of so all, here, here's well, something me, I learned about myself. Go, yeah, go okay. Let me say a thing first. First of mm-hmm. all, in the spirit of the last one, thank you for doing that because I think it's, there are things like this that you and Mike and Lloyd, when he was still here, did in the community that a lot of people didn't see, but that ha- have done a lot to honor God and bring glory to God's name through our church in a really good light. And, and not that we do everything perfectly. We don't, but it's, these are the sort of things that I think make me feel really grateful to be a part of this church. So. Yeah. I mean, that's part of what I did on my, my sermon on Sunday. Like I said how upset I was with, with the county executive. And then I was like, well, listen, he's got a hard job, but he has to do this stuff. And like, and I try to be like, look, I, like I disagree and I'm upset about it. Like I'm angry at him. And yet, I respect him. He has this, he has certain authorities. Uh, even if he, even if he's overstepped his authority, I'm going to push back in, a, in the most legal, less like least angry, like yeah. most legitimate way I possibly can. I'm going to be tempered about it. I'm not going to demonize him. Like, cause I could have said, listen, Joe Parisi is a sucker to the teachers unions and he only cares about, like, he's just a progressive student. Like I could have said all that stuff. I don't, yeah. I don't have any reason to believe it's true. Mm-hmm. Like I could think the worst of him and suspect it's all true, but I don't know that it's true. Yeah. Right? And and it's in the Bible calls that something. It's called yeah. bearing false witness against your neighbor. Hmm. It's one of the 10 commandments. Yeah. Right? And you're not supposed to do it. God is right. apparently very upset by that. Yeah. Right? Because testimony is sacred. Yeah. Like our whole our whole spirituality is based on the testimony of the apostles saying, "We saw Jesus alive." Mm-hmm. And t- testimony is a sacred thing. You can never give false testimony, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things you hear in apologetics debates is modern day people kept just being like, well, whatever. They just said whatever they wanted to. They just had their little discipleship community. Blah, blah, blah. And then you got to go, wait a second. They were Jews. One of the most sacred thing among religious Jewish men is you can never give false testimony of any kind. Hmm. You can't do that. And so when Luke says, or these other apostles say, this is what I saw with my own eyes. They saw it with their own eyes. Yeah. This is one of the most, the people in the history of the entire world that held testimony, the most sacred. And you and I go out and give our spiritual testimonies to people. We tell people mm-hmm. what God has done in our lives and what we believe and why we believe it. Right. And they have to believe that we are in earnest. We might be deceived. We might be stupid. We might be dupes, but we are in earnest. And we absolutely believe this is what we've experienced and seen as witnesses. Yeah. So therefore God says, how dare you ever bear false witness against anyone? Right. And so therefore, like, I I can't bear fault against my neighbor, even if I really disagree with them yeah. and they're in a public place. People think that because people are in public offices, you can say whatever you want. Yeah. Because and, and the reason, I think, is partly because they can't sue you. <laughs> like, there's there's laws against, you know, like, you can't sue somebody for slander if you're a public figure, in a, a certain kind of public figure, uh-huh. right? Who cares? God could still sue you. Yeah. Like, God makes no such distinction. Yeah. And so, and this is how you get terrible leaders, of course, is you slander good men and women who do public work and you ruin their lives and you treat them like garbage. And then only the most ruthless people then run for public office. And yeah. then that's who you're choosing between. Yeah. 
And it, it's it's like a classic, what's called the tragedy of the commons, where everybody yeah. does what they think is in their best interest, and it creates a terrible reality for everybody. Yeah. But here's the thing. You can overcome tragedies of the commons if you'll just be a moral person. Mm-hmm. But we've got to do that. So, like, yeah. I, yeah, I think that that's a huge deal. So, like, yeah. the way I talked on Sunday is one example. I'm, I'm planning to write. Mm-hmm. The kind of executive a letter and just be like, hey, I'm for you. I'm not for you in this thing, mm-hmm. but I'm not your sworn enemy. In fact, I'm your co-citizen and we're neighbors and I'm yeah. just doing the best I can. I know you're doing the best you can. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think that's some ways to do it. And also yeah. that's why I comply, I comply as much as I can. One of the reasons why at the beginning of COVID, I was like, we need to comply. We need to comply as best we can. Anything we can in good conscience comply with, we need to comply with. Yeah. Why? Because someday I'm going to have to disagree. Yeah. And I, I don't, and there's no virtue in the Bible of being a difficult citizen. Yeah. We're supposed to be these like model citizens that aren't difficult, that are a joy to rule over, both religiously and publicly. Right. And so, especially if you're conservative politically and you think the country's going the wrong direction politically, and our city basically is led by lunatics because they believe the opposite of what you do about what should be done socially, like you, we've got to really strive to be as good a citizen as we can because we're going to have to like, pr- like disagree. Mm hmm. And you just got, you got to go out of your way to be upstanding. Right. So I, I think that there's yeah. a lot, I think for those reasons and others, let's just say, yeah, I think these are some ways we can go out of, yeah. out of our way. Great. Okay. So we're going to wrap up with four questions that are not related to the sermon. And, um, this first one, I'm going to challenge you to keep <laughs> really brief. Okay? okay. You're, yeah. you're always saying that parts of the Bible translation aren't great. <laughs> In your opinion, which Bible translation is the best? So that's impossible to answer. <laughs> um, here's here's what I'll say. Most of the modern English translations are fabulous translations, all told in the history of the world, yeah. and relative to understanding what God wants from you and what He's done for you. Does that make sense? So the NIV is a so i i'm predisposed against the new international version i don't like it even though i chose it for our pew bibles mm-hmm. um i tend to like the english standard version a little bit better but he, what i find is when i look at the original language some weeks the esv is much better mm-hmm. and then other weeks the iv is better yeah and i'm just like ah i wish i could just put it all together but then some yeah. other pastor would go through and be like well nick got it wrong that week you know like yeah. so and on some of these there's just a really a lot of debate like the word um translated this last week um, respect those who work among you. Yeah, you chose recognize oh. versus respect. Right, right. And the word literally in Greek is to know. Yeah, like like there's all kinds of or um, yeah. So okay, so, the so word, if those, you're those two, yeah. If you're telling someone what kind of Bible to get, what are you gonna what? Yeah, I would say any of the modern English translations is gonna be fantastic. Okay. Now NIV has the widest readership, so if you want to have a Bible that is just like the your your friend's Bible. Yeah. The new international version is the most common. Yeah. The next is the English standard version, the ESV. Um, John and others in our church really like the Holman standard Christian, which is just now the CSV, the Christian. CS. Yeah. Uh-huh. Christian standard Christian Bible. Standard. I think CSB. CSB. I CSB. Think. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great translation too. Yeah. The NET Bible, the net Bible is great and has tons of explanatory footnotes. I haven't even heard of that one. Yeah, it's you get it. Well, it's free because they tried to uh, make it a pun on the internet, the net okay, Bible. Yeah, yeah. Because they published it free to the internet, um, and it had all the. It basically has a commentary's worth of yeah. notes on it. Yeah. So, the, but the NET is very similar to the NIV, and the the New American Standard Bible is one of the most literal. Yeah. Um. So, so any of those translations. Yeah. Are, okay. The New Living is is good too, yeah. but it's. Anyway. Yeah. Well, and I think too one of the things that you have taught 
the staff and different times in sermons too. It's like sometimes it's helpful just to read a couple a couple different yeah. translations next to each other, and that could right. be really helpful. So if you're someone who's heard Nick say like I don't like this, I don't like this, just have two open next to you if you're like really studying a passage and notice yeah. the differences and notice what's similar and that's helpful. Yeah. And I, I try in my sermons to say, I don't like the wording here. Or I don't like how this was translated as opposed to like, that's a bad translation. Yeah. If I say that's a bad translation, I think that it's like not, not well defensible. Like mm-hmm. you should have known this was wrong, but, but there's so, there's such group think among Bible scholars and among scholars in general. Mm-hmm that sometimes like you read it, like I read it, I'm like, you guys are nuts. How did you, how did this happen? And the answer is like, they are just reading people who wrote before them and they're responding to that. And like, then you get caught in this group thing mm-hmm. and I, it just bothers me. Anyway, but like, no, like ESV, NIV, great Bibles, either one's great. Um, the, the, the other, what's the other one we said? The English standard or no, the CSB, 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 CSB is great. That's a great B. Bible. Yeah. Yeah. I think okay. that's like 7% of a Bible readership. So not a lot of people have that Bible, yeah. but it's a really great translation. It's one of the, it's the most, it's the most contemporary. Yeah. And it was, it, it's a, it, it's a, people who like the ESV tend to like that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. Let's move on to the next one. In an AMA podcast from June 14th, you and Lloyd discussed the importance of using preferred language when crossing ethnic and cultural barriers, specifically mentioning the difference between calling an individual a Latino or a Mexican-American as requested by that individual, and then Mm -hmm. following their preference. Here's the question they wrote. Does the same importance apply to preferred pronouns of LGBTQ plus individuals? Why or why not? Okay, so this I find that I think this is a very difficult question. Okay, so I know and I know I know most people don't <laughs> because yeah. I, most people either think, well, mm. of course not, because mm-hmm. what reality matters. Mm-hmm. So if if you have an African American person and they're like, and you're like, do you like African American or black? And they're like, I like black. Okay, cool, mm-hmm. right? If you have a person who is a male and says, call me Mrs. Anderson, right? Th- those are not the same thing. Right. Because mm-hmm. one is like a difference in descriptors, mm-hmm. but both are reasonable English descriptors of a shared understanding of reality. Mm-hmm. When you get into like, for example, in the trans, like this really becomes an issue with, with the T of LGBTQ, the, the T mm-hmm. and the Q, the LGB, it doesn't like, we never had a problem in the nineties and two thousands when it was LGB, that was all we were really dealing yeah. with. It is the T and the Q that, that yeah. is trans. Like I'm a phys- physiological male but I feel like I'm a woman yeah. or Q all this gender stuff is stupid. Yeah. Like it's all construct and I'm not mm-hmm. going to submit to it. So call me Zer or Z or whatever. Right mm-hmm. now. I think it is. I think the correct Christian understanding given what we know now from the best biblical interpretation and the best scientific understanding, I say best, not majority. I'm saying yeah. best intentionally here is that transgenderism is a phenomenon people experience. That's real. And that doesn't undermine the fact that there is such a thing as a man or a woman. And those are distinct, discrete things that are real mm-hmm. that we shouldn't pretend they're not. Okay. So um, I, th- so for example, I will, I'll refer to somebody who is a, they present as female, but are biologically male. And they say, I'd like for you to call me a, ma- a woman. Mm-hmm. What I'll say is, okay, here's what I can do. I can call you a trans woman, mm-hmm. but I can't say, I can't just say woman. Mm-hmm. 
right? Now, uh, Jordan Peterson's approach to this is interesting in that he's like, I think it's polite. I think it's just sheer human politeness to refer to people as they present according to well-established cultural norms. So, for example, if you have a 50-year-old guy with a short haircut and looks like a dude, and he's like, call me Mrs., you know, like Mrs. Anderson or whatever. He's like, I would never do that. Or if I think somebody's bullying me. But if somebody has gone out of their way to look like a woman and they present as a woman mm-hmm. and you happen to know they're not one for some reason, you don't have to make it your job yeah. to try to burst their bubble. Right. Yeah. So, for example, there was a, a, a young person who came up to me at the sexuality conference, fully presented as a woman. Yeah. But about halfway through talking to, I'll say her in this context, I realized that she was a trans woman. Yeah. Right. I didn't stop saying she or her or the name she said to me. Um, now, do I believe she's a woman? I don't. Right. But I, I think if somebody goes out of their way to look like a woman and they present as a woman and that's where they're, what they're doing, I, I have not yet taken it upon myself to tell that person they are living in a delusion. Yeah. Right. However, I, I do think that, um, that trans experience is an ex- is not a so so the argument with with LGBTQ I mean what the argument ultimately comes down to from a r- simply rational standpoint is is L- the LGBTQ phenomenon part of natural diversity and just is or is it a form of dysfunction or brokenness mm-hmm. that we should hope to rehabilitate if possible or to ameliorate if not possible. Mm-hmm. Right. So you so you you can be on both sides of that and still be pro LGBTQ and affirming of LGBTQ because you could say, yeah, it's a it's like it's just it's, quote, dysfunctional in the sense that it's not it's not teleological. It's not like biologically normed like it's it's a deviation from the normative way a species, a biological species functions. But because we can't do anything about it, we're basically in the Stone Age about doing anything about it the only amelioration we really have that's effective is affirmational. Like if you're not a Christian and you don't have a divinely given sexual ethic, you might still think that that's the best we can do, but you still might think that it's a a dysfunctional effect, right? That's why there's some LGBTQ people who are atheists who think for the L G and the B, we should be affirmational, but for the T we shouldn't be because of the massive, negative biological effects of gender reassignment surgeries and so yeah. on mm-hmm. and like things we do to like because if you're a gay man we're not cutting anything off of you we're not changing your hormones yeah we're just like look if you want to date and have sex with dudes then go for it yeah right and and, and especially when you start talking about children mm-hmm. right so and especially with with the tea phenomenon, we just we don't have a lot of time on the books for this one yeah and the stuff that is as old as the 70s it doesn't look good like yeah. gender sex reassignment, look, I mean, the, the stats are real bad on that. So the idea that we're doing something fundamentally better now, we don't even know. Mm-hmm. And it seems unlikely. So I think that, so anyway, so that, that go, all goes to say that like I am mildly resistive and I won't say something that I know isn't, I know is a falsehood. And yet when people go out of their ways to present a certain way, I tend not to make an issue of it out of politeness. And I'm not sure if that's right or not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, 
I mean, I think you touched on this a little bit, but just even for more further clarification, when you're either counseling in people who are having these questions or for you yourself, does it make a difference to you whether or not you're talking with somebody who's a Christian? Yes. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah. So if I'm talking to a Christian, then, so, okay, if I'm talking to a Mm non-Christian, then talking about a trans experience is both foundational and non-foundational. It's foundational in the sense that, that there's hardly anything more basic to our humanity than our sexuality. Aside, second to being a human being, the next most foundational thing to our human experience is whether we're a man or a woman and how we experience being a man or a woman. So in that sense, their sexuality is foundational. But their sexuality isn't fundamentally identifying. That is, it doesn't have to be the foundational thing that determines their meaning or who and what they are. Right. Mm-hmm. So when somebody says, well, I'm gay, that's what I am. Or some, I'm like, well, that's just as bad as saying you're heterosexual and that's what you are. Mm-hmm. Like you're more than that. And you're something more metaphysical than that. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's too low a view of your humanity. Right. So in that sense, it's foundational. In other sense, it's not foundational. What needs to happen with this person is they, they need to know Christ as savior, Lord, king of all creation and redeemer of all things. And how, what, how that then relates to them. That's the most foundational thing. Yeah. I'm only going to interact with their transness relative to the wider issue of them coming to Jesus as Lord. If the person has already come to Jesus as Lord, now the question is, how do we apply that to their sexuality? Mm-hmm. If that's what they're talking to me about in particular, right? And in that case, then I will. I'll say, okay, so here's the thing. You have a trans experience. You believe Christ is Lord. How are we doing with this? How are we putting yeah. this together, right? And at that point, I, I try not to just drop the hammer. Yeah. Like, I try to say, okay, well, what passages are we are we reading? Like, yeah. what do you think that means? How does this? Because when people make monumental decisions, it's very it's it's usually much more helpful if they lead them th- themselves there themselves. To take people through any steps unwillingly puts a major crack in the foundation of getting them there ultimately. Mm-hmm. And so, when I work with trans folks or LGBT people, we start with Jesus, and we just start with that, mm-hmm. and then I say, okay. Like I'm, I'm ready to talk about this when you are, mm-hmm. right? And we sort of walk through that. And what I find is like, the people, like it's not like gay people aren't in earnest. Mm-hmm. In some ways, some of the gay people I've worked with are more in earnest than other people because, like, when you're dealing with something that's so foundational to your being, and like you have to decide totally different means of life, yeah, relative to what you decide about this, you have to. It's a terrible question, but you're in earnest about it. Right. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. Thank you. Okay. So this is going to be the last question and um, this is actually a very short one. So this will wrap us up. Uh, this person is wondering if high point is involved in a prin- in a prison ministry. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have any involvement in prison ministry officially. Like in like pr- like the prison ministry X, we're involved. Yeah, uh, we are involved with prisoners and ex prisoners, especially those who have connected themselves to High Point Church. Right? We don't. Mm-hmm. When somebody goes to prison from High Point Church, we don't write them off and say, "Well, clearly you're a wolf in sheep's clothing." Right? So I'm in correspondence with three prisoners right now, mm-hmm. um, and I know other people in the church who have a particular heart for this. Often mm-hmm. they are ex incarcerated people themselves mm-hmm. who have a real heart for that. Um, there is somebody in the church who is. Um, really deeply embedded in a in in like um, post incarcerated folks. Um, wh- wh- I forget the name. What we call folks like post incarceration. 
um, but like released individuals, like, mm-hmm. like helping them like really be re-embraced by society. I, I should I, I want to say this about people who haven't thought about this. Loving prisoners and giving people a chance is incredibly fundamental to Christian faith. Mm-hmm. You have to offer people a future and not overwhelm them with the cost of their past. Um, right. And so I think modern cultures struggle with this because up until really fairly recently, if you committed a crime where we didn't want you to have a future, you were executed. I mean, that in some yeah. sense, that's what a felony was. It was a crime so bad that you're not going to have a life and therefore we're going to kill you. Right. Yeah. So like, I mean, in the middle of the 1800s, I mean, I think probably in some cases, almost in the 1900s, if you stole a horse in some parts of America, you got hanged. Like, do you understand? I mean, like, wow. think about that, right? If you burn down somebody's barn, like in the, in right. the South, remember, lynching was not just done to African-Americans. Uh-huh. Lynching was a form of rural justice where you couldn't gather evidence, but like you, you couldn't just let people do stuff, right? So, that, so Booker T. Washington, the African-American civil rights leaders pointed out that more white people were lynched in the South than blacks, right? Blacks were often lynched because of racism, mm-hmm. but like it was, it was this means of like non-just justice in the rural South, right? So if mm-hmm. somebody burned down your barn and you darn well knew it was them, you'd go lynch them. Like it, it was considered a capital offense, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think it, it was an improvement when we got to the point where like, we're not killing people for that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like there's something, there's something wrong with that. Well, then what are you going to do? Right. Right. What we did is we incarcerated them and then ultimately label them felons and they have a record that they carry with them. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense to a certain extent. Right. But the book Les Miserables is all about right. the unworkability of that. Right. Yeah. Jean Valjean gets out of prison after 20 years. He stole a loaf of bread, but now he's a felon because he tried to escape prison a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And now no, he can't, he can't lay his head anywhere. There's no hostels for him. Nobody wants to hire him. He has no options. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen to him? Right. Yeah. So that issue of, especially the post-incarcerated male, even more than the female yeah, is an incredibly important issue for society and to which churches have a moral responsibility in the sense that it's our moral responsibility to speak the will of God. Mm-hmm. These people must have a path and that path can't just be, we'll give you this menial labor job way out in the middle of nowhere and put you in this filthy halfway house with other people who don't want to start a new life. Yeah. Which is, I think, what a lot of people get caught in, and then yeah. the, the recidiv- Then we wonder why recidivism rates are pretty high. Yeah. You got to have compassion on criminals as well as sternness. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. So I don't. Nobody will probably be happy with that because the the pro criminal people will say I was too hard. Whatever. Like, yeah. I, I. But I think That's- we have to have some idea about prisoners. Yeah. And people who are incarcerated and post and post incarcerated. Mm-hmm. I see you. You crossed out the. Um, Question about World War One and the Lord of the Rings and Tom Bombadil. Well, just because it seemed way too pointed, and I thought you could well, just reply well, we via just, email. We'll do our own podcast about that. I guess. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Do we know who sent it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that one's an email. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, who sent all these questions. I think these were it was a they were very thoughtful questions, and um, I enjoyed being able to talk through them and hear your responses to them. And as always, if you have more, you can send them to podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening, Nick. Thank you for taking time to answer these questions. Yeah. Thanks everybody. It's just, it's great to be able to answer questions from people's engagement and um, I'll try to get better at answering them more succinctly. Um, We just haven't had a lot of questions like this. And so I haven't scheduled in time to really reflect on some of these and try to prepare shorter answers. If you will ask more questions, 
You'll get I better. Do more prep. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.